0: Genesis chapter number 15, you know, we preached just, I guess, last Wednesday night on Genesis chapter 12, and I really, I don't have any intention on going through the whole life of of Abraham, in fact, we did that once, we preached a 14-part series on on faith in the life of Abraham, and every episode in Abraham's life has some strong connection and correlation to faith, the principle, the truth of faith, uh, the the ideal of it. but what I want to preach to you on tonight is, uh, it is the salvation experience of Abraham, the patriarch. But what I really want to preach to you tonight is on the promises of God. I'm glad that God's promises are yea and amen. I'm glad they're sure. I'm glad they're steadfast. I'm glad that by these exceeding great and precious promises, Peter said, we're made partakers of the divine nature. I think sometimes we underestimate the potency and power of a promise, and particularly so of God's promise. I remember growing up, there'd be times when uh, my daddy came home every single day for years at uh, at 2.45, and then they switched things around. He'd had to stay a little bit later. I guess make up for all that goofing off he'd done all them years. And, and so he had, he started getting home at 3.15. And the way that my daddy was, you could set your watch by him. In fact, he was more dependable than most watches. Every single morning, we learned this when we was teenagers, and we'd stay up half the night goofing off, you'd hear that alarm clock go off at 4.45 and his feet hit the floor. And uh, then at 3.15, you knew, plus or minus a minute or two because of traffic, you really knew you was going to hear the crunch of that gravel under, underneath those truck wheels as he pulled into the driveway. And... Uh, Knowing that he was coming home, it always created a sense of anticipation. There'd be times that I would ask, uh, you know, mom to call dad and have him pick something up for me on the way home. When I was real little, I always wanted him to get me an icy. And uh, I don't know how they did it, but man, they convinced We lived five minutes away from a Weigel's. Five minutes away from a Weigel's. And they convinced us that it was just too far to go to get an icy. So if you didn't catch him on the way home, you didn't get one. But during summertime... It would hit and there'd be, when I was real little, it was 49 cent ICs. Then they upped the price to 69 cent ICs. And uh, there'd be a lot of times that if you used to say, if I was to ask mama, is daddy going to bring me an icy home? She'd say, well, I promise you that he will. It would create a sense of anticipation. It literally, the perspective changed the present. The way I felt, the way I behaved very often, because it was usually attached to he's only going to do it if you behave. It changed and touched the world that I was living in. There were once or twice, not very often, sometimes when I was not very obedient. And uh, mom would say, when your daddy gets home, I'm going to talk to him about what you've done. And that likewise could change the moment that you were living in. And instead of being at ease, you had anxiety. I'm saying a promise is a powerful thing. It is not merely words when you believe and have confidence in the one that makes the promise. Everything hinges on the integrity and character of the one making the promise. But if the one making the promise can be trusted, then a promise has the power to change the present. And in Abraham's life, we find this to be the case. I want to read six verses to you tonight, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll preach a little bit from this chapter. The Bible says in verse number one, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. Lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth Out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. He believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you tonight. I thank you for this sweet, precious group of people, Lord, that have gathered in this place to hear your word, to hear from heaven. Lord, I'm excited. If I'm being honest, I'm excited and what You're going to do in our hearts this evening. The God of glory has chosen to sit down in this little church, and I just pray that You'd manifest Your presence, that You'd speak to our hearts, that You would arrest our futures, and Lord, that You'd draw us closer unto Thee. We love You, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to consider with me for a moment the background, the prior three chapters, what has transpired in Abraham's life. In chapter number 12, of course, that's the calling of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, he goes out, he steps out, and he begins to walk with God. I think it's hard for us to comprehend what a remarkable thing this is. Uh, We are so familiar with modern day Christianity, and that's not a bad thing. We ought to be familiar with it. but we have a concept, we know who God is, we know He's the God of the Bible. We have 66 books of divine revelation about who He is, what He expects out of mankind, what He's done for us, how He feels about us and towards us. Uh, but whenever God first speaks to Abraham, though there most certainly was a divine record uh, prior to Abraham's day and during Abraham's day, Abraham was a pagan. He probably didn't have a clue, anything about who the real God of heaven was. And all of a sudden, God makes Himself known to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to step out in faith, leave your family behind, and take only those uh, over whom you have direct jurisdiction. Step out, go to a land. You'll get there. When you get there, you'll know it because I'll tell you. But other than that, here's a direction. Go in this direction. I find, and I said this last week, that oftentimes we demand a destination, but in reality, all God's going to give us is a direction. We want to know how it's all going to wrap up. And it's nice when we do know it. There are times, hey, listen, I know how, this is part of the reason I can't watch none of them Hollywood movies about how the world ends, because I already know how the world ends. I know what the destination is. But very often in our life, God simply gives us a direction. He says, go, and we trust Him. And in trusting Him, He makes Himself real and known to us. So Abraham goes out. When he arrives in Canaan, he builds a couple of altars and, uh... In building those altars, he begins to commune with the God of Heaven in a more deep, a more intimate way. But by the time we get to chapter number thirteen, Abraham has already made a mistake. And Abraham, uh, or at the end, excuse me, of uh, of chapter number twelve, he's made a mistake. He's gone down into Egypt. He's spent a period of time in backsliddenness. Uh, We find the first, uh, you know, obvious sin of his life that's recorded in Scripture, though he was not a perfect man by any stretch, him lying uh, and dragging his wife into his deception. Uh, And he takes his first serious misstep. He comes back in chapter number 13, returns into the land, and we find that Abraham comes into some trouble, not necessarily of his own making, And this is what I want you to grasp tonight before we even get into the preaching, is what kind of frame of mind that Abraham must have been in in this situation. Abraham, he doesn't know who God is. He begins walking with God. He almost immediately takes a wrong direction, knows he's done something wrong, knows he has sinned. He comes back and immediately his nephew Lot, decides we need to part ways, Uh, the the land is is, uh, not big enough for us, they part ways. Abraham watches his nephew walk off into rebellion and disobedience and towards compromise with the world. He sees Lot get into trouble, Lot gets kidnapped, captured as a prisoner of war during a battle and Abraham has to go with his servants and retrieve him. On the way back, as he is going back home, he's approached by a man uh, that the Bible calls Melchizedek the uh, king of, of, of Salem, uh, the priest of the Most High God. And there's a lot of mystery that shrouds that interaction. But suffice it to say, Abraham recognizes in this interaction that he is speaking with an emissary from God. And he worships before Melchizedek, and he gives offering, pays tithes unto him. The Bible says in verse in verse number 1 of chapter 15, after these things, Now, I think every single word in our King James Bible is perfect and inspired and right where it ought to be. And I don't think God had to say that. But He says after these things to hearken our mind back to what has been a a series of dramatic events concerning Abraham's spiritual development and well-being. Literally, he's gone from darkness to walking in light to going back into darkness to being abandoned and 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 forsaken by one that he thought was a common comrade with him in this venture, to going into what is open warfare and retrieving and seeing God give him a great victory, and then all of a sudden meeting this individual, this emissary, this representative of God. It's been a busy few months, if we can say it that way. And you know that Abraham had to be reeling in trying to piece together What God was doing. I'm just going to be honest with you tonight. I don't understand God more often than I do understand Him. As it relates to what He's doing in my life. More often do I find myself having to lean on God's promises. And search His word. And and fall upon what I know to be His nature. Than I find myself being able to connect the dots with what God is doing in my life. And it is in moments like these that the promises of God are so vital. Let me just mention three things by way of introduction about these things in verse number one. What things? What was his life like? Well, let me say number one, Abraham's life was during a time of crisis. He had sinned, he had messed up, and since that, God had been mighty in his life but there's still this thing, and I'll say a word about it here in a moment, this thing of God's promise hanging out in his life, and, and it's the elephant in the room. And he is at a place where he has a decision that he has to make. He's either going to trust God or he's going to turn his back on him. He's either going to continue to walk in these promises, or he's going to turn around and walk away. And i found that oftentimes we come to crisis moments in our life. When we think of a crisis, we think of a catastrophe. But the fact is, a crisis just means a, a, a place of decision where two opposing forces meet and something's got to give way. And often that's what God's trying to do in our lives, bring us to a place where we've got to make a decision and where we've got to make a choice. And because of that, I think it was not only a time of cross of crisis, but it was a crossroads in his life where he's going to go one direction or the other. But I would say this to you as well. Evidently, based upon what God says to him in the first verse, it was a time of confusion in his life. Because when God appears to him, he says to him, fear not, Abram. Now, we might just say, well, the Lord just said that because it, it's an awe-inspiring thing to be in the presence of God. And certainly it is. But how then do you explain the very next phrase that God uses in verse 1 when he says, I am thy shield and my exceeding great reward? If I can just say it as simply as I know how, I think Abraham was probably at a place in his life where he didn't understand what God was doing and where he didn't understand whether maybe he had forfeited the favor and blessing of God, a time when uh, he steps out into sin, but then God brings him back into the land, but then he's forsaken by somebody that he loves, that he depends upon, but then God gives him a great victory. I mean, sometimes it's just hard to figure out what God's trying to do in your life. And I think that's where he probably was. And there's this elephant in the room that's, that's hanging out there, Of how this whole relationship between Him and God got started. If you don't remember, the relationship between Him and God got started on the basis of a promise. God said, Abraham, leave your home, follow me, and I'll make of you a great nation. And now the question is, what is going to be done with that promise? I want to give you three thoughts tonight very quickly before we close. Let me say number one, that we find in the first, or in verses two and three of this chapter, a problem related. Abraham brings up what is the problem. I was talking to someone the other day about a choice decision that they're making in life. And I find that as a pastor, I am often in this position. I was telling them everything that could go wrong with it. Everything. All the possibilities, all the risks, all the dangers. And I said to that individual, I said, I am not trying to be negative. I am not trying to discourage you. But the reality is, you're going to tell yourself everything that's right with it. You need somebody that'll tell you everything that's wrong with it. And I found that often, when there's a problem, we don't need anybody to tell us there's a problem. Oftentimes, we'll be the first one to speak up and remind God that there's a problem. And that's what Abraham does here. God says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now I'll tell you what would have been the right answer to that. Thank you, Lord. But that's not what Abraham says. Verse 2. Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Isn't that a fascinating question? The Lord said, I'm your reward. And Abram said, what are you going to give me? By the time we get to the end of this passage, God has not given Abram anything. And yet he grows satisfied with God's answer. The day that your relationship with God becomes more about the giver than the gift is the day that you learn the key to godly contentment. That in recognizing, not that there are not gifts that come along and favor and blessings that come along from serving the Lord, but that all of those things are bound up in the personage and nature and character of the God that gives us promises. I'll tell you this, one thing you learn very quickly in life, is a promise we said, we said at length at the beginning of the message, not a promise, the meaningfulness of it is wrapped up in the nature of the person that gives it. And i tell you this, I see it all the time. There's a lot of folks that they'll give you a promise, but it don't mean anything. We were, uh, I told you that we had a little fellowship meeting on Tuesday. Some of us preachers been getting together because, um, you know, everything's getting crazy and we got to make sure we got, you know, we got a, a, a team that way whenever, well, I'm be careful. The NSA will be, will be checking me out if I keep talking like that. But either way, us preachers been getting together and there's four of us that have been, getting this compiled and doing all this and we got a list of uh by the time you weeded out all the duplicates and all the people that it wasn't accurate information we had about 160 independent baptist churches from east of nashville so from nashville or the east side of nashville all the way in the state of east tennessee or in the state of tennessee of course it feels like west tennessee is a different state if you've ever been there but that ought to encourage you by the way devil will get out here and tell you there ain't nobody else serving God. But we called all these guys. And a lot of them would, uh, there was a few of them that said, Preacher, we'll be there. And they were there. And there was a few of them that said, Preacher, man, I, I would love to be there. I've got this going on. I've got that going on. I just don't know. I'm going to try to, but I'm not sure that I'll be able to. But then there was a few, because there always is. that said, Preacher, count on me. Save me a chicken leg. I will be there. And didn't see hiding nor hair of them. Sometimes a promise, a promise is only meaningful if it's backed up by a character in life and testimony of faithfulness. Abraham said, what are you going to give me? The Lord had already said, Abram, I've given you myself. He grew to understand that having God was enough. But in that moment, he did what was instinctive. Even when God says, I've given you me, he says, what else are you going to give me? By the end of this chapter, he realizes that if you've got God, you've got enough. Not because if you've got God, you don't have anything else. But because if you've got God, you've got everything else that does matter. He says, what are you going to give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. How would you like to have been him standing over the side? You know, what about chopped liver? (laughs) Abram said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. We find a problem related to God. What I mean by that is conveyed, spoken, declared to God. It was not wrong what Abraham did here. It's something we all do. And I don't think it's a bad thing. God says, this is what I want to do. And there's a problem. And we say, Lord, there's a problem with this. But I would like for you to consider three things about this problem. Number one, let me say this was a huge problem. In fact, it was really the heart of the matter. God's entire interaction and relationship with Abraham was was predicated upon, was based upon God saying, Abraham, you follow me, I will make you a great nation. Now you and I understand in this day, in this dispensation of New Testament grace, that that promise extended far beyond just physical children. We understand that just as Isaac was the son of promise, Isaac was merely a type of the true son of promise. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ in whom every one of us are partakers of the promises that God gave to Abraham, spiritually speaking. But in a practical sense, God was not hiding the ball here. He was not being being elusive here. When He said, I'll make you a great nation, He meant a nation. A nation with borders, with a capital, with citizens. That's what a nation is. The problem was, how could this be? God's promising him many heirs. And Abraham says, I don't even have one. This was a problem that were it not to be overcome, the promise of God could not have been fulfilled in his life. And that's an important thing to recognize. Ask yourself this question when you come upon a problem in life. Does God have to fix this? Does He have to? Sometimes He does. He had to fix this. His promise couldn't have been true otherwise. There's a lot of things we think God ought to fix... That really God is under no compulsion or obligation to fix. And a lot of times the things that we look at that we say this is a big problem are really not as big a problem as we think they are. But every once in a while you come to a place in life where you're faced with a huge problem. And this was a huge problem. as It it was a big theological issue. You see, if God couldn't overcome this, then he couldn't have been God. And to Abraham, how would he have known the difference? His relationship with this God that had spoken to him out of out of ideological, philosophical, theological darkness, was barely known by name to him. And so there was still much to be determined as far as what Abraham knew about who this God was. This was the test. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand. This was the test in Abraham's life. It was a huge problem. Let me say number two, it was a hindering problem. Abraham evidently couldn't get past this thing. So how do you know that, preacher? Because... That's how he responds to God's declaration. God didn't say nothing about the problem. Abraham brought it up. And I found this most of the time if somebody brings something up that ain't nobody talking about, it was already on their mind. Like most of the time you're sitting at dinner table and somebody says, Is anybody gonna have that last piece of chicken? They don't really mean, is anybody gonna have that last piece of chicken? What they mean is, can I have that last piece of chicken? That's why they brought it up. was nobody else sitting around thinking about chicken. Why? They full. But that person was still hungry, so they asked about it. God didn't bring up the problem. Why? Because God wasn't worried about it. God already knew what He was going to do. And oftentimes, we're waiting for God to speak to us about a problem that is no problem to God at all. And He's not dealing with it because it doesn't require anything except just our steady, faithful commitment to what He's already spoken to us. Abraham brings it up. Why? Because it it was troubling him. He had walked with God and walked with God and walked with God and ignored this thing as long as he could. He knew from the moment that God said, I'll make you a great nation... Abraham knew he was an old man. He knew Sarah was old. He knew the time of bearing children was past. He knew that he didn't have any children. This thing had been on his heart and mind for months or years at this point. And it's finally got to a place where he cannot go forward without God addressing it. And oftentimes, we allow problems in our life to become hindering problems. Now, I would remind you, can I go ahead? I know this is getting ahead of of myself But can I just go ahead and say, God didn't change anything outside of Abraham in this chapter. God does change something inside of Abraham in this chapter. But nothing outside of Abraham changes in this chapter. In fact, it's going to be another, I'm trying to remember, I'm wanting to say about 15 or maybe 25 years. I don't have my timeline in front of me. Before this promise is fulfilled. Nothing's getting ready to change immediately. Nothing. And yet... From the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter, Abraham becomes an eternally different man. Often we allow problems in our life to become a hindering influence. When it really, there's nothing we can do about it, there's nothing we can change about it. And all that's left to us is to trust God with it. But we've allowed something, the same way that a promise, if the character of the person giving it is is faithful, is immutable, can touch and change the present, So, too, a worry, a care, an anxiety, a concern that should not touch the present, that probably won't even touch the future, can become a great stumbling block in our life. To Abraham, it was a hindering problem. But I'd remind you of a third thing, and I ain't going to say a lot about it. I need to move on. But it was a human problem. He was saying in a very basic, physi, you know, physiological, biological sense, I'm old, maybe we can get past that, but Sarah's old. And she ain't going to be having no more kids. And yet, you know the end of the story, and I know the end of the story. God, by His power, does something that man could not do. And it reminds me of this, that every problem we have is by very nature of it, a human problem. Because there is no problem so insurmountable but what God cannot overcome it. Every failure, spiritual failure in your life and mine, is ours to own, because God's never failed anyone. Anyone? And every problem that we face that we say cannot be overcome, we must amend that statement to say cannot be overcome by me. Because it's not true that it cannot be overcome. It might not be overcome. It might not be the will of God to overcome it. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But it's not for lack of God's omnipotence. This was a problem. But as we read a few chapters on, we learn it was Abraham's problem. wasn't a problem to God. And Abraham was the one having a problem about the problem. Can I just say that? He was the one. And this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. A lot of times, and, and it's going, I, I'm just going to preach it here in a few minutes, but a lot of times we make a problem out of something that's not a problem because we already got a promise about that problem. And we create a problem out of it. And we make something insurmountable when in fact God has already dealt with it. We see in this passage a problem related whenever Abraham declares this problem to the Lord. But then look with me at verses 4 and 5, particularly verse number 4. The Bible says, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. Now you feel even worse if you're Eliezer. (laughs) This shall not be thine heir. Abraham says, This is a problem. Eliezer can't be my heir. God says, He never was going to be your heir. This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels, shall be thine heir. You know what I find fascinating here is that God does not add anything to the conversation. God does not illuminate anything to Abraham. Abraham would not have brought the problem up to God if he thought that Eliezer was a fit heir to his name. He brings it up because he knows it cannot be Eliezer. And all God does, let me say it this way, in these verses, we see a promise reinforced. And the first thing we see is a confirmation of the promise. Let me tell you what often we want. When we have a problem in front of us. And we start to get nervous about it and we make a problem a problem when it really is no problem at all. We want a fresh plan. We don't like how things are looking. We don't like the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't like the fact that we can't figure this thing out. And so we want God to tell us more than what He's already told us. And yet God doesn't do that for Abraham. God tells Abraham what Abraham already knew. Why? Because if Abraham wanted to know what he needed to know, that was what he needed to know. God doesn't tell him anything new. God doesn't give him the, the, the you know, 11 herbs and spices. He doesn't give him the secret recipe to Coca-Cola. He doesn't give him the secret of life. He says, Abraham, I've already told you what you need to know. And he just merely confirms that same truth over again. If somebody wanted to claim that maybe their God was clarifying, I don't think the Lord was, because I think Abraham already knew. It seems to be evident from the way that he speaks from this passage. Often what we need is not something new. In fact, I would advocate to you that rarely what we need is something new. Often what we need is another dose of what we've already got. I told to Larry, and I won't share all the details, we were talking about something before the service, and um, somebody had made the statement for Larry to reach out to somebody, we hadn't seen in a little bit, and said, you know, we've missed you, hope to see you again. They said, well, I've just been, you know, doing stuff, doing some other stuff. I told Larry, I said, I'm doing the same stuff. I remember hearing a preacher say one time uh, to a young pastor that was working in the ministry with him, that had all these ideas and all these big things that he wanted to see done, all these plans he wanted to see implemented. And that aged man of God looked at him and said, you know what we need? And he said, what is that? He said, more of the same. More of the same. Oftentimes, this pursuit for something new is merely a means of trying to escape the anxiety, sometimes that we've created, but oftentimes that is just by virtue of us being human. Abraham said, I want more info. God says, you don't need more info. You need to trust the info that you got. You don't need something new, Abraham. You already know what the plan is. The plan is, I made you a promise, and I'm going to keep it. What you need, Abraham, is to rest in that promise. We see a confirmation of the promise. Verse 5, we find an illustration of the promise. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. You've heard this before, but it's an often recounted anecdote that Teddy Roosevelt was in the habit of when he had dignitaries into the White House after supper. A lot of times they would go out onto the White House lawn and sit in lounge chairs, chase chairs, and just look up at the stars. And they say that Teddy Roosevelt would often say whenever they were done, well, we're probably back down to about the right size now. Let's go back in. Imagine what this did for Abraham. This is, and I've not alliterated out points, but I'll just say a few things that are on my heart. What a humbling thing this must have been. Because this is a question, but it's a question that is rhetorical. It's a question God already knows the answer to. Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. He takes Abraham out. And they go for a a moonlight walk and he points up to the sky and he says, Abraham, how many stars are up there? Abraham says, I don't know. God says, I do. I do. Abraham, what is one of their names? Abraham says, I don't know. God says, I know every one of their names. Abraham, did you put them up there? No, Lord. God says, I did. Abraham, do you keep them up there? No, Lord, I do. See, here's what he was trying to get Abraham to understand. That those stars are pinned in their celestial position by nothing more than the veracity and authority of the word that spoke them into existence. The same word that was now giving promise to Abraham is the same Word that hung the stars in their place and set the planets in their course. Abraham didn't even know how many there were. God says, I keep them where they belong. A lot of times, Job is such a good example of this. Job spends 30-some chapters, him and his friends, talking about, complaining about, ruminating about what God is doing and why Job's so messed up. And when God shows up on the scene... He never once answers any of Job's questions. He just shows up and for three or four chapters talks about how he's God and Job isn't. And he does the very same thing to Job that God's doing to Abraham here. Uh, Job, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you feed the animals? Do you keep the planets in their courts? Do you hold the seas back? Can you draw the Leviathan out uh, like with a hook? Can you do all this, Job? No. Well, I can. I'm the one that does it. By the end of it all, he never really tells Job anything except who he is. But for Job, that's enough. You see, the promise of God is only meaningful when we recognize the God that has promised. His nature, his character. And recognize the power of it. I think there was probably something else beyond this. The stars were of heavenly origin. Divinely sourced in God's authoritative word. And if God could step out of nothing and speak them into existence, then what does that say about the power of God's Word to do that which is supernatural and to create and to make a way where no way could be made? Listen to what he says, because we have an explanation of this promise. The end of verse number 5, So shall thy seed be. This isn't just an exercise in, as Teddy Roosevelt said, Bringing Job or er, Abraham down to size, although I think there was probably an element of that. There is a direct illustration between what God has done with the heavenly bodies and what God is going to do with Abraham's body and Sarah's body. Just as the heavens were not even in existence in the beginning, before God said there was nothing except God. In the beginning was what the Word, and then God spoke and created everything. In the beginning was the uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. God created all of these celestial bodies. What I'm saying is this, the same way that God was going to through his promise and through his power supernaturally uh that he had created the heavenly bodies was the same way that God was going to bring about this miracle in Abraham's life. Now there's, there's spiritual truths that far beyond of what I'm touching on here. Usually, by the way, this is just something for you as you study your Bible. Usually in the Bible, I would say without fail, not just usually, without fail in the Bible, when God speaks of the descendants of Abraham and says they'll be as the sand of the sea, He's speaking about Israel as a nation. And when He speaks of them being as the stars of the heavens, he's speaking about spiritual Israel, meaning every born-again believer, including those that believed on the Lord in the Old Testament, that were a part of Israel, and including Abraham. So there's great dispensational truths here. But the thing that astounds me is just the reminder that what God does, He does supernaturally. You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. Anything God does is a big deal. We often admonish ourselves when we talk about, especially during a prayer request time, we'll talk about something God did and we'll say, it wasn't a big deal, it was just a little thing. It was big enough for the Creator to step inside creation and manipulate the world around us. That was a big thing. And I understand what you mean, I'm not fussing at you, but often we admonish ourselves as though we should not mention it, because it's not worthy of people's attention. But it was worthy of God's attention. So it must be a big deal. It must be a big deal. And the, the things that God does in our life are no less significant than literally the creation of the heavenly bodies. The same supernatural power exercises and operates in both cases. As the stars are, He says, Abraham, so shall thy seed be. And the same hand that flung the stars into the heavens is the same one that works effectually in your life and mine. The same God that made that promise makes these promises. Every one of them. We see the promise reinforced. And I'd like for you to just notice Abraham's response. Verse number 5, 6, excuse me. The Bible says, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, is one of the most important verses, dispensationally speaking, in all of your Bible. And he, talking about the Lord, counted it to him, talking about Abraham, for righteousness. I know that Old Testament saints were not born again because we're born again by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God did not indwell them. I understand the distinctions between their status and station and position in the eyes of God then and now. But... To say it in a way that I think you and I would be familiar with. Right here Abraham sure enough got born again. He got saved. I believe Abraham before this moment would have died and went to hell. From hereafter, the very place that the saints would go. Would until Calvary be called Abraham's bosom. The most transformative moment in his life. Is contained in five words. He believed in the Lord. What was his response? I believe, and this is my third point, we find a problem related, a promise reinforced. We find a proper response. So you've got a problem. You don't see how it's going to be fixed. And you can't move past it. And so you've went to the Lord about it. And you've asked God to do something. And guess what he's done? He's done come back and said, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm telling you what I've already told you. How do you respond to that? Well, you respond like Abraham. Let me say three things about his response. Number one, it was a faith response. He believed in the Lord. This was saving faith. But I believe that faith, and I believe there is a difference between a superficial, shallow faith and saving faith. But I believe that the same type of faith that saves us, we know it's Christ that saves us, but the same type of faith we exercise in coming to the Lord for salvation, that the depth and character of that faith is the same type of faith that we're expected to walk in. Day by day. And so when God reinforces that promise, when God gives you nothing more than that same Bible that you have in your lap, how do I respond, preacher? You believe it. You have faith in it. You rest on it. You walk in it. It didn't require some great ceremony. Five words. He believed in the Lord. He said, all right, God, I trust you. I trust you. I find it interesting. (coughs) I don't think we ought to try to turn scriptural phrases on their head. But I don't think it's doing damage to scripture to observe this. The Bible oftentimes plays the pronoun game. And it'll say he and him and they and so on and so forth. You know, up till six months ago, there was only a handful of pronouns. So... Oftentimes the Bible will do that. And I understand clearly because Scripture expounds upon who is behind each of these pronouns. We know Abraham is the he that believed in the Lord because the Lord has no need to believe in himself. It's irrational. We know that when it says he counted it to him for righteousness that the he there must be the Lord because who can forgive sins except the Lord? And We know that the him must be Abraham because the Lord doesn't have to have righteousness counted unto him. But I would just posit this to you, that in the midst of untangling those pronouns, isn't it a fascinating thought that while the Lord was counting it righteousness to Abraham, Abraham was also counting God's actions as being righteous as well. Later on, the Hebrews writer would say about Sarah that the reason she believed God is because she counted him faithful. She looked at his track record and she said, he's never let me down. Why would I doubt him now? The fact is, God's never let you down. And it is narcissism of the highest order to believe He's going to start failing people with you. It was a faith response. Let me say number two, it was a furthering response. This enabled him to go further. In fact, this was the beginning. This was the genesis of his intimate personal relationship with God. When Abraham was willing... To to not just step out in faith, but to lean upon the character and nature of God. Listen to how the Romans writer said it in Romans 4.18. Paul said, who against hope believed in hope. Against hope believed in hope. That's when he began to know God in a real and personal way. Now, I'm not trying to conflate this or confuse this in any way. When you got born again, when you got saved, you, you you positionally came to know God as much as you'll ever know Him. But you and I also understand that there's an intimacy that develops in our walk with God too. And I would just say this to you, that until you're against hope believing in hope, until you're exercising substantive faith in the Lord, until you're willing to get past your problems by leaning on His promises, you're not really walking with Him in an intimate way. You're walking with him at a distance. I'm not advocating recklessness or carelessness. Because Abraham didn't say, I'm going to go out. The Lord said, Abraham, you go out. But I am simply saying this tonight, that when he was willing to believe the Lord, it got him past his problem. Nothing else changed, but everything in him changed. Let me say finally, and I'm done tonight, it was a fulfilled response. God gave him a son. In giving him a son, there would be a great foreshadowing of when God would give us his son. And it's a reminder to us that God never fails. There's never been a promise he's made that's been unconditional that's not been kept. God has always kept up his end of the bargain. It's fascinating. I don't have time to go through it. Later on in this chapter, you know what Abraham says right after that? He says, whereby shall I know this? All right, God, I believe you. I've trusted in you. And his faith was real because it was in response to that that God imputed righteousness unto him. So it's not because Abraham didn't really believe God. He really believed God. But he said, Lord, I need some kind of proof. God says, all right, I want you to take rams, some goats, some bullocks, some turtle doves, pigeons, and I want you to prepare a sacrifice. And often when a covenant was entered into in the Old Testament, the way they would do it is they would take a sacrifice, and they would sacrifice it before the Lord. By the way, you see this often in the Old Testament, for instance, whenever the wells were digged at Gerar in Isaac's day, and, and lambs were given as a sign. It doesn't mean they were just given as a gift. They sacrificed those things and entered into a covenant with each other, honoring and, and recognizing the fact that those wells had been dug. And so they'd take these animals, and just as Abraham would do in chapter 15, they would kill them and they would flay them in two. And they would make like a runway... They'd put half of it on this side, and then the other half on this side. And they would walk arm in arm together through that bloody path, reciting the terms of their covenant. God told Abraham, I want you to get this ready. We're going to do this. So Abraham, he got involved in this thing because he was the one that gave the sacrifice. And he was the one that prepared it. And he was the one that set everything ready. And then for the entire day, Abraham had to sit there and drive away the birds from coming down and defiling those carcasses. And all of a sudden, the Bible says a horror of a deep sleep went over Abraham. God put him to sleep just like he had done Adam when he pulled the rib out. And when Abraham wakes up, he sees a smoking lamp and a burning furnace floating side by side up and down that sacrifice. So what was that, preacher? Hebrews writer says this, that when God could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself. That by two immutable things, in the which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a sure anchor steadfast for the soul and that within the veil. God brought Abraham into that thing, but then God said, All right, Abraham, now's the time when we have to make promises. And your promises don't mean anything, because you're human. And you mess up, and you can't keep your promises. So you go to sleep, you're already in this thing. And then I'm just going to walk up and down this thing myself. And I'm going to swear by myself. And you see a covenant. When it's unbreakable. A covenant. When the two parties involved with it are immutable. Is a promise. At the end of the day. What? How am I going to know? What does God do? He says. Let me just give you another promise. A lot of times we don't need nothing. We've already got what we need. We need to get in the promises. We need to stand on them. We need to tell our flesh that it don't get to run us. We need to tell our fears that it wasn't fear that saved us, it was faith. So we're not going to yield to fear. And we're going to trust God on the things that God has spoken on. So what if He ain't spoken on it? Then you don't have no reason to trust Him on that matter. But if He's spoken on it, then you can stand on it. The Hebrews writer also said there'd come a day... When the Lord was going to shake this world. And why is he doing it? So that the only thing will be left are those things which cannot be shaken. As your world is shaking, there ain't going to be much left. Except those things which cannot be shaken. This cannot be shaken. What you need is not a new plan. You need to stand on God's promises.